it up because you want it. Right. Okay, let's get into the message here. Uh, first of all, the approach of the subject to homosexuality, I want to give you just a little bit of review. There are those who are protagonists, those who would be standing up and saying homosexuality is for today, and some who are antagonists. And there's different degrees of those, those who would disagree and those who would agree. And I talked about the approach, how I would deliver this to you, whether pragmatic, like it just doesn't work, like a fork is made for eating. Well, human beings are made for male and female to be together. That's the utilitarian approach uh, as well. And there are detriments uh, in the pragmatic approach in the gay lifestyle. You can uh, die physically earlier. There are psychological problems with that. And then there's the sociological approach that it creates problems inside of society. But I'm really not going to deal with those. I told you I was going to give you a different approach, one that is fit for the church. Do you guys remember what that approach was? A biblical and moral approach. Okay? You have to keep that in mind because remember, when we get into the worldviews out there, the biblical moral approach is going to stand out as something that is odd or on the fringe. Right now in our society, Orthodox Christianity is the extreme. It is the fringe. It is the pejorative group. It is the one who is argumentative. It is the one who always says no to the world that wants to have just a bunch of fun with no consequences. And so that's the realm we're coming from. The reason I'm giving it to you like this is because this is how God wants us to understand it. Okay. Now, I went over three different things on how I'm going to present this to you. One is the why. Why are we even at this crossroad? Why is the world going in its current direction? Why are things changing? Why are the morals migrating away from biblical standards? And I dealt with that. The second one is what does the Bible say about immorality and specifically homosexuality so we're going to look at scripture hopefully we'll get through that tonight and then there is the how how are we supposed to interpret what the bible says about homosexuality how are we to respond to what the bible says um, concerning this instead of just interpret it how are we to treat others who are homosexuals or gay and how are we to respond to the homosexual agenda And how do we engage others on this subject? Now, remember, I gave you a lot of questions at the beginning. Last time, I'm going to give those to you again, because when we get to the end, I'm going to ask you these questions and see how you respond. And hopefully, you've taken some notes, and you'll be able to go back to the notes and give a reason for the hope that lies within. Some of those questions are, if you have family members who are gay and claim to be Christians, what do I do? How do I treat them? If they get married, do I go to the wedding? Do I participate in the wedding? Do I invite them to dinner? Should I attend any function where there's going to be gays showing signs of affection? Should I maintain close friendships with those who are gay? Can I go to Hillcrest and hang out in the restaurants? Should I participate in anything concerning Pride Week in San Diego? My workplace promotes the gay agenda and is tolerant of everything else but Christianity. Should I stay or should I quit? Should I just remain silent about everything gay? If I'm a baker of cakes, should I refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding? Should we allow someone who is gay to attend church? What if someone is transgendered and they get saved? What then? Okay, so these are the questions that we're going to be faced with, with individuals. And I asked you last week, how many have not run across or do not know somebody who is gay? And only one person raised their hand. 
So everybody in here knows somebody who is gay or has had a conversation with or could talk to somebody that they know who is gay. So we're taking this biblically and morally. And remember, the purpose of the teaching is not to just gain knowledge because it puffs up, not to berate or condemn or criticize the gays. I believe that homosexuals are self-condemned. And it's not to start a new moral majority where we're going to just go out there and take back our country, so to speak, you know. Uh, it's to educate and equip you to engage the culture for Christ and learn how to share your faith uh, and to warn others of the coming judgment and to share God's love and plan of redemption. Now, I was going to also cover the framework. Remember, I gave you five different worldviews. Can you guys tell me those five different worldviews that I gave you? What's the first one? Well, yes, theistic. Yes. 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 Postmodernism. <clears throat> to give you guys uh, just a personal anecdote here, I talked to somebody last night in the office here, and uh, I've known them for 30 years. And uh, when I first knew them, I witnessed to them all the time. I just constantly, I had the chance. And. Uh, he talked about Christ and everything, but when I talked to him last night, uh, not so much. Doesn't go to church and has this different view of the world. Took a trip to India for three months and was there. And so got this whole different perspective and fell into kind of like the karma view. Doing a bunch of good things and maybe good will come back to you, that type of thing. And completely walked away from the idea of Christ. And so if I were to talk to them about homosexuality, I would have to keep that in mind and backtrack a little bit and bring them up to snuff as far as what is right and what is wrong and go through the idea of postmodernism or spirituality and that view of the world. So it's important that we know the people we're talking to, we understand their viewpoints in order to bring them back around. And that was the purpose of giving you the worldviews. And of course, I'm going to look at this from a biblical worldview. And I asked you guys a few questions if you, in fact, had a biblical worldview. And I found, a, you can go on the internet and you can look up biblical worldview and you will find test questions uh, to see if you have a biblical worldview. One test I took, I forget, 20 some odd questions I got a 92 because I disagreed with them on a couple of the questions. But I definitely have a biblical worldview. And you can do this too just to double check yourself. You don't want to bring in doctrines that are not biblical. You want to make sure you're holding to the scriptures. And if you do, you will have a good footing on which to be an apologist for the morality of Christ rather than the morality of the world. And the questions that I asked were... Do absolute moral truths exist? Is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Is God the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe? Does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Does Christian, excuse me, does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? Now, this was George Barna that gave this test, and it came through Focus on the Family. What percentage of Christians do you think answered yes to all the questions? Take a guess. What percentage? 80? 
69. 9% of the people that took this little test that George Barna gave had a biblical worldview. And so that just tells me we are shifting away. We're going to this postmodern worldview. So now with this, let's shift it. These worldviews, let's go into the realm of the physical relationship. And when I'm talking about sex, I'm just going to use physical relationship for those who are here so we just have an understanding. I don't want to put anything into young impressionable minds if they hear this in some kind of context okay so it's a physical relationship in the naturalistic worldview the physical relationship is natural there's nothing wrong with it right because there is neither right or wrong and so whatever you can think of well it's natural and from a biblical standpoint it's of the flesh whatever your flesh wants to do Give into it. Do you guys uh, know who the Epicureans were and the Stoics? The Stoics. How would you describe a Stoic? Sandy, how would you describe it? No fun. Right. Just, well, I don't, or, or they're too lofty. They have too much knowledge and they're, they know better than just to do anything that anybody else does. That's a stoic. If you say somebody looks awful stoic over there, their arms are folded, their head is back a little bit, and they're looking down at you, you know, that's a stoic. Epicurean, on the other hand, um, there is an eclectic sandwich. It is the Miracle Whip Banana Peanut Butter and Bread Sandwich. Now, if you've never had that, it is quite the delight to bite into that. You get all these flavors going on. And the Epicureans would say, that is an Epicurean delight. It's get into whatever feels good, whatever tastes good, whatever looks good, just go ahead and do it. And so that would be the naturalistic view of the world. So the physical relationship for people in the world, it's Whatever feels good, just go ahead and do it. Then there's the pantheistic. There's really no good or evil. It's just unenlightened behavior. And so if you simply, if you do no harm, you know, whatever you want to do is just fine. Of course, we know that no man or no woman is an island. Then there's the theistic view of the physical relationship. The physical relationship is only to take place inside the confines of marriage. If there is not marriage and there is the physical relationship taking place, God calls it sin. Most people would say, that is so restrictive. Well, God set it up that way not to ruin our fun. He set it up that way to protect us. He wanted us to have a solid society. And if, you, if people don't conduct themselves in this manner with the physical relationship, then it just... It's like sliding towards Gomorrah. Anything starts going. You can do whatever you want. That's when you get into the polyandry, like multiple people in a marriage or polyamory or multiple people in a relationship, that type of thing. So God says, one man, one woman for their whole lives. And that's it. That's God's standard. Then there's the spiritualistic side. Remember I talked about the temple to Aphrodite? If you 
please the goddess if you bring an offering if you visit the temple prostitute then god or that particular god aphrodite may bless your crops and your life and give you children and your wife will be fertile and that type of thing so you base your life based on what pleases or displeases the gods or the demons who are out there and that was a practice especially around biblical times it is today too if you go over to certain parts of the far east then there's the postmodernism postmodernism the physical relationship is based upon whatever the culture says if the culture says it's okay it's okay how many people when it comes to the homosexual agenda as a percentage are directing what the culture says is right Well, it might be a, a little more than that because there are some, the homosexual community is about 2%, but you have to add those who have bought into postmodernism. And so it's still low. It can be, you know, 10% or 15% maximum, I think. And I'm just giving you an estimate. What's that? Well, but see, yeah, Hollywood is in that group. Hollywood and academia... And you have the, um, the media that's involved with that. And then you have the homosexual community. So if you put that group together, that group is influencing the rest of our country. And it's a smaller percentage. The majority is not winning on this because they control the education. They control what comes over the media outlets. And because of that, they are winning, quote unquote, this battle. So going on here. And by the way, I, I wanted to give you this. And you might look this up. <clears throat> Probably going to write this down. In the congressional record, January 10th, 1963, there were 45 declared goals of the Communist Party in America. Number 26 was present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy if you go through and you do some research on that you will find that the whole list 45 they're either ongoing or they've all been accomplished up until this time you it's very enlightening to read that if somebody wants to post that on facebook you could say wow this explains a lot you know why we're going in this particular direction now going on You know, if we have this biblical moral view, it will not only help us to understand how to respond with the, homosexual the homosexuality and its advent, but it will help you to decide who to marry, who to go into business with, who will be your friends, who you'll seek counsel from, how you will determine right from wrong, who you will vote for. It dictates your entire life. And if you do that, Bible promises you will be blessed. If you keep the commands of God, we will all be blessed so in order to engage the culture we understand why it's a postmodern society there's a group of people that are in charge of moving it in that direction those the rest of the community of the united states were involved in commerce and making a living and that's becoming difficult and now there's two incomes that are usually necessary for a family to make it today and if they don't they have a uh, lower than uh, normal subsistence in their households. And so there, it, there's this big movement to change society in general. So that is the why. 
Now, the what, what does the Bible have to say about immorality and specifically homosexuality? Now, concerning homosexuality, when you talk to the people in the world, the wisdom of God is foolishness. And what the people think to God, that's foolishness. So God and the world's wisdom are at odds with each other. If you go to the world, to most of the world, and you talk about the plan of salvation, most of the world will say, you're crazy. It doesn't happen that way. And the only reason I believe it is because I've investigated the Bible, and it's true, the prophetic aspects of it, I'm going to hold to that rather than believe what the world teaches and the world's wisdom. So with this, you have the physical relationship and the Bible. Now, what does the Bible say about immorality and specifically homosexuality? Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2, and this is where it begins. This is way back to the beginning, and this is how God set up the relationship between a man and a woman. Now, most of you know this. And it's also repeated in the New Testament. After Genesis chapter 2, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, the man said, and this is when Eve was presented to the man, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is talking about the physical relationship. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. He repeats this over in Ephesians chapter 5. At least the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul was guided by the Holy Spirit in verse 31. He repeats this phrase. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he set up the institution of marriage. Marriage is what is under attack, so it's not something that humankind has set up. It's something that God set up, and the world wants to go against the, the ideal definition of marriage, which comes from God himself. Now, God created marriage in order that there might be the physical relationship inside and there would be procreation, that we would have children and we'd be fruitful and multiply. The world wants to have the physical relationship without the confines of marriage. Now, whenever you have that physical relationship, there are always going to be consequences. Every single time, there's going to be a consequence. The consequences can be good. The consequences can be bad. We know the bad side, after one physical relationship, we know it can result in death. Right? AIDS. It can result in death. We know that from a one encounter of physical relationship between a man and a woman, it can result in a baby being born. It can result in a union both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And that's how God set it up. The world wants to say, no, just satisfy the flesh. I want no consequence. And as a result, we've come up with the birth control pill the abolition of marriage, the IUD, the morning after pill, all of these things to have the physical relationship without having any consequences. Of course, there are consequences built in, but those personal consequences seem to go away and they're pushed out to society in general. So God's solution for the immorality which is, exists is what I just gave you, Genesis chapter 2. 
since there is so much immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let each man, in verse 2 and 3, let's, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Again, this is talking about the physical relationship. It goes on to say that the woman is not to withhold and the man is not to withhold. You are never supposed to say, not tonight. You are supposed to die to yourself and help the other person. Now, we know there's all kinds of problems with that that can result. Somebody can be really selfish and doesn't give a whit about what the uh, wife or the husband is going through, and they just demand it. Well, that's a problem right there. But this idea is you're supposed to be willing, and God says this is the place that that is supposed to be satisfied, and that is the only place. Now, there is connection why this is to be so, that there's supposed to be this fidelity, this one-to-one relationship, because there's connection to something in heaven. Do you guys know what that connection is? The marital bond was something that God talks about in Ephesians. What is that? What's that? The bride of Christ. It's Christ in the church. Will Jesus Christ ever divorce his bride? No. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, if you read it to the end, he says he's talking about Christ in the church. And he never wants that dissolved. And so that's why the institution that he created, he never wants it dissolved. Now, just as a side note, we live in a fallen world, and it does take place, and God made provision for that as well when it does happen, but that is not his will. So a marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. All other sexual activity is considered sin. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. Now, at this particular point, you're probably saying, wow, that is just, that is just so restrictive. You know, what? you can't stop young kids from going out and having this physical relationship? Well, in our society, it's probably pretty difficult. And how tight do you put the reins on the children to keep them from misbehaving? You know, the, the kids, let me ask you, how intent were you on getting out and seeing somebody after you had, quote-unquote, come of age and wanted to be with someone else physically? How much effort did you put into that? How deceiving were you? Did you lie to your parents? Did you slip out a window? I mean, were you doing every single thing you could possibly think of, especially the young men? The young men, just like, oh, man. Uh, for those who don't understand this, and I've talked about it before, the young men, they, they, I think they become brain damaged at puberty. They, it, it's, it's like there's this switch that turns on and in their minds, nothing else matters at all. That, that's pretty much all they think about is the feminine sex. They, they just can hardly control it. And if you've ever talked to uh, young men uh, about this subject, you can tell. And, of course, all old men were young men. And they remember that. And believe it or not, ladies, that does have a tendency to mellow over time for most individuals. If you think to the contrary, well, we'll just leave that between you and your husband, okay? But this, this idea of Leviticus chapter 18, God went into great detail about the physical relationship of what was permissible and what was not permissible, all right? Verse 
1 says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws. For the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative and have, and I'm just going to read it here, sexual relations. I am the Lord. So that's relatives. In our society today, you can marry your first cousin. I know somebody who has. But you're not supposed to, in Scripture, marry your close relatives because genetically that can lead to problems. You're not to do this with your mother. You're not to do this with your father or with your sister, verse 9, or your father's daughter or your mother's daughter or with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter or with your daughter or the daughter of your father's wife or with the father's sister. By the way, the King James says... The original 1611 says, look upon their nakedness. Now, I think they wanted to temper what they were saying. Yet, is that what you have, Nancy? They wanted to temper the language there. But this is talking about the physical relationship or sexual relationship. It goes on to say, with your daughter-in-law, with your brother's wife, with both a woman and her daughter or a woman and her granddaughter, do not take your, your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her. While your wife is living, do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period with your neighbor's wife. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. In in our today's society, that would probably be equivalent to abortion. For you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. With an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Now, what word is missing in this in the context of the teaching I'm giving? Homosexuality. It's not here. The reason it's not here is because I told you before, as uh, what I'll get into a little bit later, in 1892, that's when the word was developed for Bibles. It was not in the Bible, but the concept was here. So how old is this concept at this writing? It's thousands of years old, even at this point. You know, so this is not a new concept, but those who are contrarians to the idea that homosexuality is prohibited say the word homosexuality was not in the Bible and that was for the nation of Israel. It was not directed towards Christians, which we'll get into in a minute. Leviticus chapter 20, turn there in verse 13. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, I have told you before that the Old Testament law was separated into three main categories. First, there is the civil, which combined with the criminal was one aspect. There was the ceremonial, and then there was the moral law. This is the moral law of God. It does not change. Now, somebody who is a homosexual, if you followed this law, 
homosexuals today would be killed. <coughs> we are not supposed to engage as a country in theonomy. Theonomy is where you take the Old Testament laws, the moral laws, and you install them as law in our country. There are people that like to do this. There's one guy named Rush Dooney. He would like the Old Testament laws to be installed in the New Testament <coughs> laws. There's going to be problems with that. Okay, but this idea, God just simply said, this is wrong. And he gave all these descriptions, whether incest, infanticide, adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality, he gave all of these examples of what not to engage in. And this is God's rule for the physical relationship. So we understand that God laid this down a long time ago and we're to recognize that he also laid this down in the New Testament times. Now, there are some objections out there as far as Sodom and Gomorrah. I, want, I would like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 48. This talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It first points out that the main sins, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48, the sins are, I think there's six total that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of. And it lists them here. Verse 48 of Ezekiel chapter 16. It says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, which would have meant the small villages on the outside of Sodom, were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Now, that thing that is referred to as detestable there can be defined better in the New Testament. I'd like you to turn over to the book of Jude. It is just one chapter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. What's next? You keep going. Jude, chapter 1, verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angel who did not keep their position of authority and abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And so God specifically says Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for sexual immorality. And that's all sexual sins. And we know that they were involved in many. And I'll give you, um, actually, off of a blog, 
some of the things that they were involved in. Now, I'd like you to turn over to Romans chapter 1. It tells us here also about homosexuality, but it doesn't use that word homosexuality in the NIV. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about God and his divine nature and his eternal power having been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, we know that God exists through creation. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, they made idols. Therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. In other words, there is a judgment to come for the same-sex relationship. Furthermore, since they did not think it... And by the way, I want to back up just a minute. Some people would say in the Christian community that AIDS is a judgment directed by God onto the homosexual community. I would say it was just a reaping and sowing. Now, we can reap what we sow. We will reap what we sow. If you sow to righteousness, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. If you sow to the flesh, you sow to diseases is what happens. So you you uh, sow to unhealthful living is what takes place. And God says, don't. And I'm not talking just physically. It can be unhealthful for the individual, even emotionally. To give you an example of this inside the homosexual community, even if you have uh, two men who are together, even in a monogamous relationship, sometimes, and I think it's a large percentage, I read about it once, but this percentage says it's okay every once in a while to go out and have a fling and come back. But if you do that and you are a woman in a relationship like that, there is a tremendous amount of angst that is produced. There is jealousy that rises. There is physical abuse that happens inside the lesbian relationships. They've written articles about this stuff. And so there is a dynamic that is different between the gay male and the lesbian female when that takes place. And so there are problems that arise just because of the relationship itself. And that's where God is saying, and that's just a reaping and sowing, and that's the penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, verse 28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with envy, or every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although 
They know God's righteous decrees, and those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so that is the result of what God would call the perversion of the physical relationship. Now turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. <coughs> In Second Peter chapter 2, God talks about this as well, about the sexual relationship being outside the confines of marriage. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 6. God decreed destruction for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. A mound of ash was all that was left. Grim warning to anyone bent on an ungodly life. But that good man, Lot, driven nearly out of his mind by the sexual filth and perversity, was rescued. Surrounded by moral rot day after day, the righteous man was in constant torment. Now, there are different translations that you can go to i just happened to pick that one because it was kind of clear that god condemned sodom and gomorrah for all the sins listed in ezekiel but also specifically for the sexual sins that they got involved in turn over to first corinthians chapter six now what i'm doing for you here is just listing what the bible says both old testament and new testament concerning homosexuality both with men and with women same-sex relationships first corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 says do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of god and he defines who the wicked are he says do not be deceived now this is a, a key phrase right here and you might want to underline this but there are those who think that they are not wicked and that they will inherit the kingdom of God and God describes who the wicked are. And these wicked might think that God is going to forgive them for this particular behavior because they think it's okay. And then God lists the different behaviors that are disqualifiers from getting into heaven. He says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so God makes a list here. Now, this begs the question. What if you ask God to forgive you and you want to continue in the lifestyle? Does he forgive you of that? God would say there is no transformation the request to have your sins forgiven was not genuine because if it were genuine and the person was struggling the person would say i know this is wrong and i need to turn from it that person gets the grace of god that person you come alongside that person you seek to help them to get out of the bondage that they're in that is why we exist as a body of christ but the person who says i can do this and God forgives me, and there's going to be no problem because he loves everybody. That's why he says, do not be deceived. In other words, people think they're going, but they're not because they think these behaviors are okay. This is also listed in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Revelation chapter, I'll read that one right now. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. 
sexual immorality. And that encompasses all sex, all physical relationship outside of marriage. Impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Witchcraft is drugs. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So God simply says, don't do these things. If you do, do not be deceived. You're not going to heaven. You will get your pleasure here on earth, but even if you said the sinner's prayer, it is not genuine because you have not declared that this is sinful and you have not tried to move on from it. Those people would say, God loves me and he's okay with this. They're being deceived according to the New Testament. And it's our job to let them know that this deception exists. Now, not many are going to be receptive to that, but God's word stands all by itself. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15 talks about those who are outside of the confines of heaven. It says, outside are dogs, those who practice magic arts. Again, that's drugs. The sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, this also talks about the physical relationship. It says in verse 9, We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders, and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which which he entrusted to me. And so there is a list of individuals here that are not fit to go to heaven, that they are considered lawbreakers, they are considered the wicked. Now, all of us fall into these categories. The only reason we are different today is because God has forgiven us. We declare these things to be wrong. And of these listed sins that are here, all of us at some time will probably fall into one or another of them. And again, that's where the grace of God comes in. He says, you're saved, I know you're struggling with this, and you're not going to get it perfect until you have your new body because you dwell with the sin nature, you dwell with the flesh. And that is, again, our chance, our opportunity to extend grace. Remember the publican who beat his breast next to the Pharisee? And he could not even look up to heaven. He said, forgive me, God, for I am a sinner. And his sins were many. But the Pharisee tried to justify his behavior said he was a righteous man and he tithed and all of that. And God said, no, the guy who beat his breast and could not even look up, confessed his sin, knew it was wrong. And so that's who God gives his grace to. But to the one who says, I am a righteous individual, that is the one who is not justified before God. So that's that's the lesson that God is telling us here. Now, in another version, and you always want to look up some of these texts in other versions because it brings understanding. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, it says, and this is uh, God's word. It was copyrighted in 1995 by the word, God's word to the nation's Bible society. It says, we know that Moses' teachings are good if they are used as they were intended to be used. For example, a person must realize that laws are not intended for people who have God's approval. Laws are intended for lawbreakers and rebels, for ungodly people and sinners. 
for those who think nothing is holy or sacred, for those who kill their fathers, their mothers, and other people. Laws are intended for people involved in sexual sins, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for those who lie when they take an oath, for whatever else is against accurate teaching. Moses' teachings were intended to be used in agreement with the good news that contains the glory of the blessed God. I was entrusted with that good news. And so that's just another version, a more updated version. And we want to go to updated versions to see what they say because they bring clarity because our language changes from year to year. And so when another generation comes along, they're going to need a new translation in order to understand what's being said because of the transformation of the language that we currently use. Now, this idea, if you go back in verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, you will see in the NIV this phrase, slave traitors. In God's word... The the word that is used is kidnappers. Uh, I think in the King James, it's men-stealers. Is is that right, Nancy? Is that what you have? Man-stealers or men-stealers? Okay, that's all right. We forgive you. 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. And so there's, there's this idea of somebody, pardon me? Whoremongers. That's what's used. Okay. <clears throat> what's the word after whoremongers? Men stealers. See? So you have kidnappers, you have men stealers, you, you slave uh, owners, that type of thing. It, it's this idea that you go and take somebody, and it's a man that you take. Now, with this, I remember hearing an interview on uh, K-Wave of this man who is an archaeologist. There's a couple of guys, and they were over in Israel, and they were looking for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and her sisters, so to speak. And they started doing some, some excavations towards the north end of the Dead Sea. The traditional site for Sodom and Gomorrah is the south end of the Dead Sea. Well, this one guy, he has a blog, and as they're doing these excavations on these tells, and tells are mounds of dirt in which cities have existed in the past, and they've been broken down and covered over with dirt over time, over the thousands of years they've existed. And this is what he writes in his blog, and his name is Dr. David E. Graves. He writes, and he talks about this tell. And the tell, he calls it uh, Tal El Haman, and it's referred to as Sodom. He says, between these two things, we knew that the people of Sodom, this Tel Haman, weren't just any old garden variety Canaanites. What is significant is that the Macanian culture was known for its institutional pederastia, of the Minoans, including the time-honored and accepted practice of ritual kidnapping. The Minoans, or the Minoan pederastia, now pederasty is where you have an adult man and a younger boy. That's pederasty, okay? Was, in fact, the very structure of the society by which boys were raised into men. 
It was the rule, not the exception. Each boy at age 12 was taken as an aromenos or a beloved by a 22-year-old Erastus, which is a lover, to be raised for eight years in a male-male sexual bond. It was usually initiated with a ceremonial kidnapping performed by a gang of ritual abductors sent by the older male. The practice was formalized and ubiquitous, which means it was everywhere across Minoan culture. Boys couldn't be considered properly trained male citizens unless they submitted to the process. They then repeated the social or societal norm, in quotes, with their own aromenos or lever. Generation after generation, on Crete, the women and or wives often lived separately from the men and boys. It was a thoroughly male-dominated homosexual culture in which the narrow role of woman was to bear and raise children. There were additional formal Minoan institutions developed to promote and sustain the androphile, which is uh, androphilia and uh, gynophilia, it's attraction sexually to men or attraction sexually to, men, to women. So this is talking about the male attraction here. It says there were additional formal Minoan institutions developed to promote and sustain their androphilia. Okay, so you understand what that's saying there. Uh, the model of social organization. And the more we research into this, the clearer the Crete-Sodom connection becomes. And so what they were doing around Old Testament and New Testament times is the secular non-Jewish societies would go in, kidnap 12-year-old boys, and the one who would kidnap them and keep them for eight years was a 22-year-old that had been kidnapped previously as a 12-year-old boy. And that male would have relationship with that 12-year-old boy for eight years. Then it was his turn to go get a boy for eight years and this was rampant in society it was everywhere and when you see the word kidnappers that's what it's referring to and unless you do some background information you think it's just a slave trader it's not a slave trader this is what they were doing and so god was condemning that particular behavior in first timothy now we're at the top of the hour I've given you what scripture has to say about homosexuality, both Old Testament and New Testament. These are God's decrees. What we're going to get into, and just for review, we've given the why things are happening the way they are. It's because we're moving into this postmodern worldview. I've given you the scripture, what the scripture has to say, both Old Testament and New Testament. Never in the Bible is a same-sex relationship ever condoned. It is always condemned as something that will separate you, not you specifically, will separate any one of us from God. And so that's his decree. The world doesn't like God. The world hates God. Therefore, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is going to be rejected. It is going to be called an ancient document. It's going to be called a document that is out of touch with modern times. And we need in our country to separate that from all social 
and governmental interaction because it's discriminatory. And there are laws that are in place that do that even today, and they're going to become more stringent. What I'm going to do next time we meet, and this is going to probably be a three-part, is I'm going to bring to you some authentic uh, deniers of Scripture. They twist the Scripture around and they say, this is what Scripture has to say concerning homosexuality. And then I'm going to let you know what our response needs to be to these questions. And so right now, um, if you're not well-versed in the Scriptures, if you don't have them down, if you're not able to argue with the worldviews, please don't go up to somebody who is gay or homosexual and say, do you know what the Bible has to say that you're condemned? You know, it just... You have to be able to handle it in a right way. We want people to know. And by the way, and I will say this again next week, this is something that is so serious that the suicide rate among young teens that are getting into the homosexual lifestyle is sometimes 35 to 75% higher than the national average. I was reading in Israel, it's like 35 or 45% higher. People will commit suicide over this. And, and so we have to be able to communicate in such a way that we're not going to send them down into the doldrums. We want to protect their lives. God loves them just like he loves anybody else. Okay? And so homosexuality is no greater sin, and I'll repeat this next week too, it's no greater sin than somebody who's a murderer. And we need to treat it that way. We would witness to the murderer. We need to witness to the homosexual with the same grace and love that God gives all sinners. Now, do you guys have any questions concerning the scriptures and homosexuality? So you got it down. Hopefully you wrote those down. I I would encourage you in the front of your Bibles to just write the verses down. Just make a list. Write Usually in the front or in the back of the Bible, you have several blank pages. Just write scriptures on homosexuality or the gay lifestyle, the marriage, that type of thing. And just write them down. It's where you can turn to them if you need to. You may not be able to memorize where the scriptures are, but you want to be able to, if you have your Bible with you, to open them up and show somebody if they're genuinely interested. Okay? So um, we're just going to pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to go through these scriptures. I pray that they would rest in our minds, that they would take root that you are a God who is to be feared for you are righteous and there is a judgment to come for all those who turn away. The same love and grace that you have extended to us, we ask, Lord, that you would build up in us that we might extend it to others. We desire to do this in a way that is pleasing to you and we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in this pursuit. Help us not to be just hearers of the word and get this information, but help us to be doers. Help us to bring the love that you have to others. And Lord willing, we will do so. In Jesus' name, amen.